Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is an important moment. With us is a Nelson and David Rockefeller, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, Shannon O'Neill, truly one of our experts on Latin America and particularly on Mexico. And a lot of people won't know this about Nelson Rockefeller, who, you know, people will perceive as the governor of New York, 41st vice president of the United States. He cut his teeth in Latin America. He was, I remember as a kid, he was way out front on the courage of America to look south and build relationships. A lot of people equate President-elect Trump to Rockefeller vision and Rockefeller politics domestically. Do you see any indication we can get Nelson Rockefeller with President Trump to your Latin America? I think, unfortunately, not. I don't think he has a lot of interest in the region. He's never expressed a lot of interest in in the region. And really, very few of the people that he's actually appointed so far, that he's nominated so far, have any knowledge or interest in the region. So I don't think we're going to see that turn south that we saw with the Rockefellers. What lessons can we learn from the the populist movements in Latin America as we look at the rise of populism here in the U.S. and around the world? Is there a continuum between the two? You know, there are very big differences, and we have here the the biggest challenge in Latin America for me. We have economic populism. We have overspending the like. That's what we usually think about. But the really biggest challenge populism brings to me is the undermining of political institutions, the undermining of the checks and balances that make democracy work. And while we here have 200-plus years of democracy, we probably – we have much stronger institutions – Many of the things that we rely on are not actually rules or legislation. They're norms. And that, I think, is the challenge. We could see a rolling back of some of these checks and balances that really make our our democracy vibrant with a new administration, if they so chose. Before we look ahead to that new administration, let's look back at at what the Obama administration can say about their achievements uh, here in Latin America over the last eight years. I've traveled with the Treasury Secretary to Brazil, Buenos Aires, and, and Bogota, and it struck me that... Um, the administration could sort of trump its, its success, uh, bring some more emphasis on free markets to those countries. Did the, did the Obama administration do much with regard to, to Latin America? What can they say that they did? You know, we saw a lot of bilateral cooperation, more than, say, a regional cooperation. So we saw economic ties, security ties deepen with Mexico over the last eight years. We saw similar back and forth with many of the southern cone countries. And one thing we have seen, particularly over the last year plus, is a turn in Latin America to a much more U.S.-friendly and market-friendly types regimes, whether it's Brazil, Argentina, Peru, or others. So that really is something they did themselves, but a real accomplishment. And finally, I would say one thing Obama did in the region was take the challenge and the issue of Cuba off the table, mm. which had always deviled overall U.S.-Latin America relations, what mm. we were doing in Cuba. How much of that is is at risk, I wonder? Uh, we had the death of, of Fidel Castro, of course. We have the change administration here in the U.S. Uh, you can say President Obama did so much. Is that at risk of changing with a new president? 
Like so many policies, it's hard to know what Trump will do. But he has come out, and many within the Republican Party are staunch hardliners. They want to roll back and set up real divisions between the United States and Cuba. Perhaps we'll see Trump not nominate a ambassador, which is now we have normal relations there, but we may not see a person there. And I doubt we'll see a continued opening to to uh, to Cuba, particularly yeah. as long as Castro's there. Sure. The stereotype there. Well, there's not one stereotype. There's so many stereotypes of Latin America. Which one do you want? to destroy <laughs> most i mean it's commodity based it's a long ways away blah, 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 blah. what's the one you want to destroy most you know the one i'd like to destroy most is the sort of image we have that latin america is full of tumbleweeds and donkeys walking down the main streets you mean of cassidy and the sunday exactly Everybody gets off the train and i don't know what they say about bolivia but there's that famous line exactly so that is no longer latin america it has its challenges but it really has vibrant economies it has a burgeoning middle class and it is connected yeah. with the rest of the world it's a <clears throat> they're global players today i went to a dinner last night a cocktail party it was a cocktail party uh-huh. david that's what you do when the cocktail party's a good one you call it a dinner there you go so no one knows you stay too long <laughs> i went to a cocktail party last night with a lovely woman from uruguay who said I mispronounced it, but that's a different story. <laughs> How's Uruguay doing? Uruguay is doing fairly well. This is a is country, it like a little Switzerland? It is like a little Switzerland. It's about 3 million people, so it's about the size of the Upper East Side of, of New York City. Um, but it's doing fairly well. It has a broad social safety net. There's jobs being created. It's very open to the rest of the world. And it has a lot of political consensus to do so. It's also very U.S. friendly. So this is a country that has found a balance and makes things work. Okay. You've made things work here uh, today. Shannon O'Neill, thank you so much for the Council on Foreign Relations. I want to bring in Steve Whiting now. He's the chief global strategist at City Private Bank. Kind enough to join us here uh, in New York this morning. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. Let's start with that ECB meeting uh, yesterday. Get your sense of, of that decision, a taper in all but name, uh, I suppose, from Mario Draghi. Well, this is sort of a very, very successful, uh, you know, approach, uh, communications approach around uh, what is a, a program that they've managed and they've had a long time to think about ways of making it more flexible, uh, the potential to uh, reshape the yield curve, uh, to uh, make the most of what will be uh, a smaller amount of absolute purchases. So, uh, you know, they did everything they could and succeeded in the marketplace in many respects, other than, you know, the fact that we did see um, higher bond yields Mm. uh, at the long end uh, in the Eurozone, but the currency weakened uh, and equities uh, moved up despite uh, a what we won't call a taper, according to uh, Mario Draghi, but uh, what is a, a smaller amount of absolute asset purchases going forward? Yeah, he indicated there's a, a willingness to buy assets below interest rates. And then during the Q&A that followed, he seemed to indicate that they weren't there yet, that the committee was there to study that it could do it. What's been the market effect of that, of, of the ECB expressing some willingness to buy uh, assets that would be below the interest rate? There is a well, certainly the steepening of the yield curve, uh, the notion that policy is still open for business, that this is not uh, curtailing or, you know, the beginning of the end uh, to uh, stimulus in Europe. I certainly think that for the rest of this decade, you know, rates will be zero or below uh, at the base level uh, in the Eurozone. Um, Unfortunately, that's not the whole story in the Eurozone that, you know, what uh, monetary policy has done, what uh, policy uh, to uh, harmonize bank regulation, to create a, a variety of risk mitigating steps, politics can undo. And that's uh, a little bit of our focus, too. But yesterday, uh, he certainly ruled the day. 
politics driving so much. We certainly saw the, the result of the, the Italian referendum on Sunday. Uh, there's uh, obviously the banking crisis continues in Italy. What are the next steps there? We, we, we look for a sort of caretaker prime minister in Italy. Uh, what, what's the resolution? What are the steps to the resolutions you see with regard well, to the it's, Italian it's, These are still open questions, and you know, you look back in Spain without a government uh, managed for to months, do pretty right? well, yeah. and you know, you you wonder though, um, do populist victories work everywhere every time? Uh, and, you know, so we don't know, do we have early elections? Uh, where will the five-star movement play uh, into this? Uh, you know, when I look at the uh, political calendar next year, I just see, you know, agony over what will the results be? Mm. You know, where will we be, you know, in uh, May, be in the second round election in France, for example? So uh, we don't know. Will there be early elections or caretaker government uh, in terms of Italy? Uh, and, you know, I would just be careful that in sort of these year-end market periods where professionals need to make their year uh, and the direction of markets have been up. You know, folks are not fighting it. They're buying in. And uh, we will have, uh, in, particularly in Europe generally, uh, lots of concerns about politics and uncertainties. And I, I'm just not convinced yet that markets actually like uncertainty. How different is this year-end market period from those in the past in light of what we uh, saw first in the UK, uh, the US election here? Is positioning somehow different this year than it has been in the past? Well, I think a couple points. You know, last year, uh, I would point out that we had very difficult positioning the first Fed tightening of a cycle in the month of December, which December tightening steps are unusual. Changing the course of monetary policy is unusual. How far the Fed would go is a question. Uh, you know, we were uh, vulnerable in the petroleum markets. We were vulnerable, vulnerable in the Chinese currency. Uh, and these sorts of things made for uh, an unusual turn of the year period, which is normally seasonally quite strong. Mm -hmm. You know, what we're seeing now were the best equity returns of the year uh, you know, or seen late in the year into the beginning of the new year is the normal seasonal pattern. But um, when you look at uh, all that the Federal Reserve faces, how, how sure is Janet Yellen going to be when she answers questions on, on, on Wednesday of next week of the direction of the, the Fed under a new administration? You know, she's just so extremely careful not to overextend herself and uh, not take risks uh, and uh, in some cases not answer those questions. Yeah. Uh, right now, Stephen Whiting with us with Citibank. We've had a wonderful morning with Mr. White. A lot of uh, value uh, add here. And I guess to circle back to the United States, you've always been diligent about saying nominal GDP links into revenue. I'm assuming you look for a revenue pop across a broad corporate America, given the enthusiasm for the president-elect? Well, uh, look, uh, if you have tax cuts alone, forget infrastructure spending that amount to 3% of GDP, uh, probably the turn of the year, maybe, uh, and this was achieved under uh, the second Bush administration, maybe earlier than that with changing withholding tables, if they can possibly get that through earlier. You're talking about, you know, substantial uh, fiscal stimulus, uh, the larger budget deficit, more borrowing, but a smaller tax take, even with high savings rates for upper income uh, taxpayers. That's a really that's certainly no timid fiscal policy. Uh, and that will mean faster nominal growth. It leaks out to the uh, to the world, but will, a lot will substantially get sped to the United States. How much has your, your outlook changed uh, since the election and, and maybe more than that? Have you changed allocation since, since the election? Uh, we have. We went into the election neutral on global equities, underweight on fixed income. Uh, we uh, took down our international equity weights, so the global uh, 
position is now uh, more overweight on cash uh, and equities. And uh, certainly this is not about, you know, the year and seasonal rally we talked about, but about the strong U.S. dollar and the political risks next year. But this goes to the heart of the matter for next year. And frankly, even for now, does Citigroup see a correlation and normal relationship between bond dynamics and equity dynamics? Or is it distorted and you await for normality? Well, what's important is that there's only one economic outlook. And if you look, um, this is maybe a little bit inside baseball, as you would say, but uh, if you look at implied volatility in the fixed income market, it's expected to be very high. Implied volatility in equity is expected to be quite low. And the only way you get this is if this is smooth sailing to stronger economic growth. So policy has to strengthen the economy more than bond yields have risen in many respects. And so, again, you need smooth sailing on the trade front, international Mm -hmm. relations, all these sorts of things. Um, Inflation expectations, growth expectations have risen. They've done the same in the UK after Brexit. Uh, But, you know, as you saw in the case of Brexit, three months later, there's news. There's things that haven't been priced in completely, you know, including what, you know, whether it's hard Brexit, so-called, or depending on uh, the position of London as a financial center. Uh, and, you know, there'll be more things to learn here uh, about an administration that's forming about these choices. I will say, uh, when you heard, you know, comments from Wilbur Ross, for example, that uh, trade sanctions are the last thing that you want, and that's the last uh, way that you improve American exports, you know, that's substantially more optimistic view of things than we heard during the election campaign. It seems like a lot of people have made bets here on the the, the promise of possibility. Uh, when you look at, at what policy could happen, people have bet that it's going to. You saw that you know, with the, the hope for this uh, infrastructure spending package among some. Uh, when is that going to give way to, to more reality? In other words, uh, is, is that going to last... Well, what is the reality? Yeah. You know, that's that's the key question here. You know, unified government spells action. Uh, and, you know, we think that Republicans and, and the new president uh, will work fast to make sure to maximize what they can get done. So you're not worried about November signs that there's some fracturing still in the Republican Party in the House? No, so. but I think that should be a worry. And, you know, I think to be clear that, you know, what we know now. A lot of Republican strategists could tell us everything Hillary and the Republican Congress would do, probably, you know, get nothing done together. They could be very, very clear about that. You know, here, markets are forced to forecast with greater uncertainty. And that's one of the reasons why we just have this uh, overweight in cash at the moment. Uh, just our confidence level that we know what will happen, as opposed to assume, is, is different now under in this new policy regime. Do the personnel picks instill confidence? Do they instill clarity? Uh, the people that he's picked for his cabinet, Donald Trump has picked for his cabinet, do they give you any more clarity about the policy directions of his administration? Uh, I think it's one in the direction of deregulation. Mm-hmm. And uh, whether, you know, good or bad deregulation, we know that regulation can be costly in some cases. But I think the major story here is that the risks uh, that we were most worried about, disruptions to trade, disruptions uh, to labor markets and, and labor market mobility, these types of risks have been diminished. And uh, we think that the, the picks have installed more confidence uh, in uh, that regard. Is investment picked up? Well, we, we haven't even had a new administration yet. You know, what's funny is that... Well, you know, in the last three days. We just... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, earlier you showed on TV, you showed the consumer confidence chart, which is very interesting and telling yeah. that there was this latent... Uh, ability for consumer confidence to rise even more. I'm going to be very interested in what business confidence readings do. You know, what does the NFIB reading do when you think about, you know, the cost of health care, when you think about the cost yeah, of regulation? You, you nail it. And if folks, the chart was morning in America, how we've come back on the edge of Ronald Reagan uh, expectations and good feeling. 
Steve Whiting, what is critical here is the two businesses. There's the blue chip advisors and the round table, business round table. And that's big companies with endless debt available, endless credit available. And then there's small business America, the NFIB mm -hmm. survey, right. which it's sort of kind of like come back. You need to see that before you get more enthusiastic. No, I think that there's a good chance that domestic small business will feel uh, more optimistic in the outlook going forward. That that would be my prediction. I think that there is a bit of trepidation in international business if there's any sort of disruptions, you know, to supply chains across, uh, you know, countries. I think, you know, you know, just look at the uh, auto industry. If you have some reason why you can't, you know, uh, put on a door handle from an, uh, an American-produced car because, you know, that part was made in Canada or Mexico, then you don't get that sale. These are the sorts of tail risks that I think people worry about on the international business side. And uh, importers generally, uh, you know, are going to be concerned about relations with China, for example. But uh, I think that the domestic small business sector, uh, which has been hampered in a lot of ways uh, and has had an incomplete recovery, as you just suggested, I think we'll have uh, more of one. You travel widely, and I imagine that uh, a question you're going to get is about trade and, and how real the threat of tariffs are. You heard Wilbur Ross uh, hedging a little bit here, saying that we're, we're misunderstanding trade policy, Trump trade policy, if we think that tariffs are going to be at the top of the agenda, they're, they're at the bottom. But well, it's what, very what, comforting what, yeah. to hear that. Exactly. <laughs> what, what do you say, though, to those those clients and others who, who, who ask about how, how much clarity there is about Donald Trump's trade policy and what that could mean here for the economy? We're at the very beginning. These are uh, individuals that haven't taken uh, their seats in government yet. Um, I think that from the range of different picks, there are going to be a wide variety of influences on, on the uh, the coming new president. And uh, some of these things are specific to countries. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about Mexico, uh, which exports in the neighborhood of 10 percent of its GDP to the United States and the U.S., which exports less than 1 percent of its GDP to Mexico. You know, you have very different trading and bargaining positions at the starting point. Now, you've also had very big exchange rate sure. adjustments. And, you know, we have to, to say that. That, uh, this can actually add to tension. We can't look mm -hmm. at this and just say that uh, this is going to be smooth, smooth sailing from here from all the good things that we've heard so far. Are there opportunities in U.S. equities right now? Absolutely. And, you know, a couple a couple of things. I'd say um, we're a little bit more cautious on sort of chasing the rallies that have been driven by expectations. Not that they can't work out, but it's been a lot pretty fast. Uh, and then there have been well-positioned sectors. You know, you think about financials, we're the cheapest sector at a large discount to the broader market heading into Mm -hmm. uh, the situation in the face of uh, higher interest rates. How you get the higher interest rates should normally matter. But when you're the cheapest sector in terms of valuation and you've had these large liquidity buffers and interest paid on reserves, things that are unique to the cycle that make, you know, large financials geared positively mm -hmm. to interest rates, yeah. you, you go with it. Well, Stephen, thank you so much. Stephen Whiting was sitting with a lot of perspective today and particularly, you know, I'm sort of, David, we're, we're, that's what we need right now because the, the, you look at the data screen in one moment, it's correlated, and like you look 22 minutes later, and it's like, wait a minute, what <laughs> are bonds gone. and equities yeah. doing? And some of that's like end of year. I mean, we're getting to that point. Uh, the, without question, the, the story of the last 60 minutes is weaker euro. 105.55, no parity watch, but nevertheless, it gives it up uh, as maybe we look to Italian banking. We continue. Stay with us. This is Bloomberg. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors 
have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. What a joy it was yesterday to talk to Michael Lewis. I can't say enough about his new book on uh, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman. Uh, it, it's going to be another giant hit for Michael uh, Lewis. And you know that with the success. But there was sort of a first book by Michael Lewis where you went, oh. <laughs> and then boom. That's the way it was for Rushir Sharma. He brought up breakout nations in pursuit of the next economic miracles. And it was like another blur of emerging market books. And then you picked it up, David, and looked at it. And you went, oh, just like Michael Lewis. <laughs> Richard Sharma joins us uh, now, of course, with his new book out as well, The Rise and Fall of Nations. And again, Richard Sharma with Morgan Stanley on commodities. Richard, wonderful to speak to you. Too short today because of the news on Coca-Cola. Is the commodity bear market over? And you can you say for commodity EM, the boat, the, the, the sea is rising, the boats will lift? Hi, great. Um, great to be with you on, Tom. Um, no, I'd say that as far as commodity prices are concerned, if uh, history is any guide, what it really shows is that you typically tend to get a big bust and then, uh, you know, some sort of an echo bubble after that. But, you, uh, but for many years, possibly even a decade or two, commodity prices after a bust tend to sort of trade in a very broad range. So therefore, for the price of oil, I think about 30 to $60 a barrel is the, is the price range we're likely to be for the foreseeable future. And in fact... Uh, there is one extra di- dimension to this commodity uh, rally currently that, that the liquidity in China has now found its way into many commodities, and that's partly leading to these bubble-like conditions back in some commodity marketplaces. I mean, in China, some of these commodity prices is, uh, uh, are up a lot. There's rampant speculation going on without demand having actually recovered that much. So... I would say that we have to really trade with caution here, given the fact that the huge bounce we've seen in commodities off the lows uh, is being really led by rampant speculation in China. I know that you caution against it, talking about emerging markets as a block, so forgive me for, for doing so here. But if we see the disintegration of these multilateral trade deals, if we see a movement toward more bilateral uh, trade deals, if the U.S. becomes more uh, inwardly focused, more inward looking, what does that mean for, again, forgive me, emerging markets? Yeah, I think that, you know, we are in an era of deglobalization. And in that era, I think that uh, the old emerging market model of exporting your way to prosperity is under serious threat. Because historically, if you looked at the progress of emerging markets, many of them, particularly in East Asia, found their, uh, found their way to prosperity by exporting manufactured goods to the developed world. That's a model which was started by Japan and followed right through by Korea, Taiwan, up to China. I think that model is under very serious threat now because that was done in an era of globalization where global trade was booming, capital flows were uh, financing a lot of the trade, and uh, you also had free movement of people between borders or at least freer movement of people. I think that all those three traditional aspects of globalization are now in reverse, and this model of exporting away to prosperity is under serious threat. Uh, I was in Mexico earlier this week, and you know, the feeling there in Mexico is like the 51st state just being kicked out of the union. So 
I think that this is a very serious uh, disruption of the traditional emerging market growth model. A few weeks back, we had Neil Ferguson on the show, and, and he, he said, uh, these are not the 1930s. The, the parallel doesn't work. When you're, when you're looking to history, for example, uh, is there an analog? Yeah, I mean, I'd say that uh, 1930s is the most extreme example of what, uh, of what happened. But, you know, but generally, if you look at the uh, um, history of development, what we've seen is that you have long waves of globalization followed by equally long waves of deglobalization. And deglobalization doesn't have to be uh, of the sinister variety that we saw in the 1930s, but something just sort of grows uh, like over time. So I'd say that history uh, has parallels, but maybe not... The right. exact parallel of what we're seeing just now. But are you seeing a different deglobalization with the president-elect? Yeah, I think that uh, the trend seems to be accelerating, right? So that's what we've seen this year. In fact, in the post-crisis world, deglobalization was already creeping in. So the slump in trade flows, capital flows, even the slowdown in immigration flows, all those things were already in play even before this year. Now, this year... Uh, the political mood has really sort of uh, shown itself to be in favor of deglobalization, whether it's Brexit or what happened here in the U.S. Uh, a month ago. So I'd say that the trend seems to be only accelerating, and uh, I don't see that, uh, that trend sort of shifting uh, in the foreseeable mm-hmm. future. Rashir, let me ask the question everybody wants to ask and want to toss you off the show. When's the next book come out? <laughs> Listen, I just, I just came out with this book, uh, and... Luckily, it sort of you know, found a good reception, so I'd rather yeah. write on this. As you know well, that uh, writing books is a bit of a uh, tall order, so uh, just happy to sort of uh, well, speak about the theories in this. As I said, deglobalization is one of the big aspects that I've covered in this book. But to me, the most important thing, really, what I've tried to do in this new book of mine is to basically speak about why is the global economy today just not being able to grow at the rate that it right. was last right. decade or the or the decade before that. So for me, I spent a lot of time on, on that team and then, okay, if that is the w- world, what is the new math for economic success? And then which countries are likely to do well or not okay. do well using the new math? Rishir Sharma, thank you so much. I make a joke of it, but he put so much work into the books. But hey, 2017 is a new year. Maybe we'll see something yeah. in the new year. Mr. Sharma is with Morgan Stanley. His books are truly definitive on emerging markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.